read some feedback, go and find some forums, find some YouTube comments, like look at what people are saying about you and you can start to tap into things that maybe aren't showing up in your higher level data. Welcome to Tech Marketers Uncorked. Every episode, I share a glass of wine with a leader in the tech marketing field, bringing you the best B2B marketing strategies for you to make your own. In today's special live episode of Tech Marketers Uncorked, we're joined by expert guests Stephanie Bolin, Content Director at Standard Chartered Bank, and Jared Keeler, Organic Content Lead at WISE. Both seasoned content professionals from the fintech sector, they're bringing their wealth of knowledge to the forefront as we embark on a journey through the world of content localization and niche targeting, particularly in the fast-paced tech industries a topic close to my heart. So grab your favorite drink and join us as we uncork a celebratory bottle of Chapel Down sparkling wine and explore these critical strategies. So tonight we're going to be talking about niche audiences, personalization, localization. Now, I think these are all terms that like we talk about all of the time. You know, everybody who works in marketing, so most people in this room, We'll have heard these terms before, but I'm quite interested to know what does it mean to you? What is personalization? What does that mean to you? It's an interesting question. And probably one thing I've realized, even just preparing for this podcast today, is that I don't often think of the technical terms of the types of work we're doing. I'm just focused on growing a team and creating really good content in the languages that we need to create it for the audiences that we have wherever they are across the world, wherever we have products and wherever we have search volume. But then when I reflect and think about how would I talk about the kind of personalization, Wise is a complicated business in that we have lots of different products which are very different in different countries and we're launching you know, new currencies and new markets all the time. So you actually can't have complete consistency in the content that you would produce across the world. You will always have to have a level of personalization and localization to make sure that the content matches the product offering and the market itself. So now I realize the personalization that I'm thinking of is really just focusing on great content for real people in the markets who need to use this product. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think understanding your audience and understanding the market as well. You do see a lot of people get that wrong when they start to go global is that they take content from their main market, UK, US, whatever that is, and try to do a lift and shift. Uh And, you know, growing up in the US and now running an agency in the UK, I can tell you that even though both countries speak English, it is very different and you can't just do a lift and shift. But Stephanie, what about you? I think personalization is a really interesting question for those of us who are doing B2B marketing as well, because often when you read about content personalization or you're looking for ideas or inspiration, it's always those direct-to-consumer brands, right? It's like how Ocado personalized their grocery deliveries or how Nike did their size and fit data. And quite often we're not dealing with audiences where we have a huge pool of people with very bespoke data on them. So the things you're talking about, finding audience resonance, speaking like your audience, understanding who you're talking to, personalization maybe more broadly conceived is is really, I think, where many of us are operating. And there's a little bit less research and material around that. So we have to have to get quite hands on, I think. 
Yeah, it's really different when you're doing it in a B2B context because you might not even have all those data points that you have in B2C. I mean, Facebook Meta probably knows just about everything about us, where when, you know, even looking at a social platform like LinkedIn, you know, the data points available on it aren't as extensive. So how do you start to build a strategy that considers a global audience, but is also, you know, personalized and relevant and appropriate for those markets? So for context, I'm referring to one team in particular at WISE, which is the SEO content team. And that team sits within the performance marketing team. So the primary goal is to bring growth and impact and, and ROI. And so that means that we have a very data-led approach to content planning. And some of our markets are really old and really big, and we have loads of content and loads of data. So primarily, we kind of have this endless cycle where if we're launching new content in a new language or we're trying to grow a new market, we will always start by looking at the performance data of what we already have. And then that performance data will give us insight, like the broad categories that work for us that seem to get the rank well for, for our brand that topically relevant to, to WISE and to our target market, and also individual series or, or content pieces that have worked really well. And then we will look at person by person, market by market. They'll do their own keyword research in the native language they speak. At this point, we have about 41 people in the SEO content team, 30 languages for 60 markets. So we've really figured out how to do this and to continue to scale it. So then what they will do is the, is the keyword research in their own language. They'll find the equivalent content and create that from scratch and then publish it. So we don't do something like quick and easy translations. We'll try and get a localized version of the content first. Yeah, and understanding the SEO data and using that data to kind of identify new markets or identify new pieces of content that should be created. So yeah. using a very database driven approach. It's really helpful. I mean, my background is in SEO, so it's the first thing I would look to. But when I first joined WISE, so maybe four and a half years ago, it was at a place where I knew the team could grow quite rapidly. I had the sign off to hire people. Like uh, I was hiring nonstop for years. And I knew the product was available in loads of countries where we didn't have any content. And I was, I was in a situation where I had to work out which people do I hire, which languages do we need first? How do I prioritize this? So we, yeah, we went to the SEO tools first. We looked at the most common keywords that we have in English, just did a Google translate on what those keywords are into a spreadsheet, grouped them in as meaningful a way as we possibly could manage, run them through a keyword research tool to get some sense of prioritization from what the size of the search volume looked like. And then we just built a list of countries, top to bottom of where we wanted to hire. And then that kept me sane for probably two and a half years. I just followed that plan and kept on going. And then, yeah, that's how we ended up with such a big team. Well, it sounds like quite a sensible and logical and practical way to go about it. Stephanie, what about you? How did you start to build that strategy? And how did you identify what markets you should be in? And how did you lead that global strategy? I laughed a little bit before when you mentioned Meta because I, I worked at Meta before I moved to Standard Chartered about six months ago. And I'm going to be very candid and say that within the Meta content marketing function, our data was not as sophisticated as I think many people might imagine. There was a lot of data. There was a lot of data gaps. There were a lot of data sources that were not super joined up. One person had worked on building a dashboard. They'd left the company. The dashboard was broken. We couldn't fix it. All of these things that might be familiar to people who've worked in tech companies. So we were kind of coming at it from potentially a slightly less sophisticated place than you've described, Jared. And I found that challenge quite interesting. We had some data and analytics. We knew broad things about our audience, but there were a lot of things we didn't know. 
And in my most recent role, I was working creating content for Business Help Center, which is an interesting function because you sort of sit between product teams and marketing teams and you're, you're doing things that are very functional and content design focused, but also trying to get people to use these products. And we would constantly find a tension between where we wanted to lead our audience and being led by our audience. And I think whenever we talk about personalization, particularly if we're building out a strategy, there's always that. Do I have an inspirational message and I want to get you on board with it? Or do I already know what you're talking about and I'm plugging it in? I think at the best times it can be a bit of a, a generative tension, like it's good to have those two things going on. And SEO, to my mind, is a great example. We've been having a big debate in my work this week and I work on a corporate comms team. So we cover personal banking, corporate banking, industrial kind of B2B APIs, all these different segments of the business. And we've been having this huge debate about should we just get a copywriter to do some really inspiring copy or should we put all of these SEO keywords in? And it's been driving me crazy because I, I don't know if you agree, my feeling about when you do something like SEO really well is all you're trying to do is understand and speak like your audience. And so when you talk about, hey, should we be led by data or not led by data? It's, it's sort of the wrong question. The answer is always finding the space between the two. And I mean, when you have that strategy, how do you decide resources? So it sounds like you were hiring in each market, but if you're looking at a global strategy, might not be possible to hire in each market. So did you know that you always wanted to hire in-house people or yeah, did you consider freelancers and agencies and how did you decide what you kept internal and what you pulled in external and do you build a global team or do you partner with people who are already in the market, who are already on the ground level? We have probably three approaches. So when it was clear, there were just loads of markets to launch, loads of languages and the business case was, was really clear. That's when I hired people to, because I didn't have any hesitation that they would be a worthwhile investment, so to speak. But then you get to an interesting point because you've then hired as many people as you can hire. You've covered as many markets as, as are, are obvious. So then I have two other, uh, and to be clear, uh, so all of these people in the team are SEOs. So they are doing the keyword research and the planning and they commission the content out to freelance writers who are also native speakers. Uh, that can be a really helpful hack if you're not based, you speak the language, but you're not based in the market. So for example, English content in Singapore, it's really helpful to have somebody who has lived with the struggles of international financial life in Singapore, and then they can speak with authenticity. But two other options you can have if you're, if you're not sure what to do, but you need to scale somehow this, this more global approach. One thing I tried was hiring a new market specialist. So I knew I had a long list of smaller markets that would probably never warrant a full-time hire. So we just had a, a list of all these different languages to test and this person could come in and try to figure it out, find a freelancer who could do the keyword research in the language, find a freelancer who could write the content. They kind of project manage the whole thing, get the content uploaded and then switch to another language the next quarter. And then you have some data to work with. So if you see that one language starts to really perform, you can invest in a full-time person. If it doesn't really work, then you haven't lost much. And then the other option is just to do a light version of that, which is to just to outsource keyword research and content creation in other languages, put it live and hope for the best. Yeah, it's quite an interesting debacle because it can be quite a risk to like go into a new market and if you haven't done that market before. So I quite like that approach of hiring a new market specialist. But Stephanie, what about you? How have you built like a global team and how have you decided when to hire or 
when to use an external agency or partner. I really like that idea of bringing in a, a new market specialist. The other thing I'd say is really baking localization into all of your processes rather than it being the thing you do at the end. So to give an example, a problem we would often come into at Meta is we would have new web content wireframed at a global level, and then it would roll out to region, and then it would roll out to in-market. And by the time it got to in-market, we would have a version in German where all of the copy didn't fit on the buttons because German translates long. You would have Arabic and Hebrew totally breaking the UI because they are right-to-left languages. And then you would have the battle of going back to the US and going, your website is beautiful. I cannot roll it out in a mayor in this form. So involving localization super early. So you're looking at what does design need to look like from localization? What's happening with your brand? If your case study for your campaign is about a lingerie store or an alcohol store, I can't roll that out in some of my markets. So really making it a consideration from the content planning stage, I think is so important. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because quite often when you create these global campaigns, you expect some of the assets to work globally like a wireframe. So how do you begin to build a campaign that will work globally? Do you need to create a new campaign for every single market? Do you know ahead of time what might work and might be able to like only need small adaptions? How do you begin to build a campaign and know what assets you're going to be able to use universally? I mean, one super tactical thing I did when I came into my team at Meta which is, sorry, I'm leaning on the negative a lot tonight, but we started collating just a list of red flags. And so that would be everything from, please don't use this type of imagery because we can't roll it out in Turkey, right through to, hey, please be aware that these languages translate the other way. And that gave everyone who was involved in the process sort of a source of truth. It was constantly evolving. I'm sure we didn't get everything but as much as possible documenting what are the things you have to look out for. And then when someone comes up with the, the content idea, if you are, for instance, in a region liaising with a central team, you've at least got a document you can refer to. But when it would come to ideating campaigns, we would also try and do our best to create things in market that could then scale globally. I like what you said about the document to refer to, because I'm thinking back to over the years, we have what we call marketing playbooks. And you always had the English marketing playbook for how you can do everything for the UK. And so that was often good enough for, for other markets and until it wasn't. And then we realized that actually what we need to do is have a localized marketing playbook before we start advertising or marketing in a new country or language. And so, yeah, I completely agree that we have this this document that we can refer to that gives us confidence of what we can and can't do. And yeah, that's kind of keeps you on the right tracks. Yeah. So you have your strategy, you have your team, you have your campaign approach. How do you then decide where you divert your attention? I mean, are all markets treated equal? Are there markets that are more important to you? Sounds like Jared, you might've taken a data-driven approach, but how do you decide where you're going to focus your attention? It's a really hard decision to make because we have lots of data maybe too much data we have not just seo data we also have the customer data in a in a completely legitimate safe way very aggregated but we can see things like how many customers we've generated through our content in each country and and the currencies that are being moved and the volumes of the currencies and the, the individual features of the product that are being used 
Then you pair that with new launches which are coming into new markets and you compare that with the size of the, of the markets. And then you also have product teams who are in Brazil and really passionate about what's coming out in Brazil. But then you have the product teams who are in the UK and are really passionate about what's coming from the UK. And both of them want you to prioritize them this quarter. For me, I ultimately have to lean on the marketing part first. So I have to look at where the strongest SEO performance is likely to come from first and foremost, because that's going to get me the return I need to report on back to the business and show progress and growth. But you end up with a long list of, of loads of different ways that you could prioritize and you just have to try one, I think, and then learn from it if it doesn't work out. I think there's such an interesting question there about choosing your metrics as well, because we have a very similar thing. If I just went off volume of web visits, I would end up with a different list of prioritization than if I look at return on investment. So as an example, Standard Charter doesn't have a huge high street retail presence in Europe and the Americas, but a lot of our corporate banking comes through Europe and the Americas. So it doesn't necessarily show up in an outsized way in the web traffic, but it, it's outsized return compared to the number of visits. Yeah. So, I mean, we're balancing our priorities and creating really great content that works globally, but then how do you how do you actually measure the success of a campaign? I mean, if it's only one click and then somebody spends six million with you, what metrics do you look at? How do you then go to your boss or your superior and say, look, this campaign that we did was super successful and argue for more budget or more resources to be able to continue your really great work? I would say I always try to set KPIs that are a best guess. I'm talking a lot about sort of gaps in data tonight because I think it's really important, really important to stress how big a part of our lives they can be. So there would be a set of metrics I would, could be relatively confident would ladder up to revenue. So when I worked on product content at Meta, that would be unblocking advertisers. And if you had an advertiser that was struggling to use a product and then you resolve their query over time, that's going to generate more revenue. So that's a metric you can have quite a lot of faith in. Then we'd have things that we didn't have a view on, but that we'd like to. So we'd start building partnerships with teams like data science or with data agencies. So that might be, okay, can we go one step further than that and do a trial of action rate tracking? So of all the people who came to this article, what percentage of them went on to take a specific action in app and then you just you kind of start getting these one-to-one -one correlations actually took us quite a while to start building that out but i found that very valuable and then i know i keep hammering it but the qualitative side is so important so i was thinking about this ahead of the podcast when i was thinking what are the tools i found really valuable or the playbooks i found really useful and i came to the realization that there's not really been a point so far in my career where i've gone wow, I wish I had a tool that could give me this specific thing as much as I felt the problem has been teams not really talking to each other and sharing the data we do have in intelligent ways. So I really made it a mission in my last role. And then again, I've been at Standard Chartered about six months to talk to people who are client facing as much as possible, talk to the people who are on the phone to the clients, they're hearing their problems, talk to the people who are actually like resolving client tickets if you have a product where that's part of your process you know chat to marketing sit in with user research read some feedback go and find some forums find some youtube comments like look at what people are saying about you and you can start to tap into things that maybe aren't showing up in your higher level data i've, I've found it very valuable 
Yeah. I mean, and sometimes as marketers, we have to take risks and like do a campaign where we don't know if it will work or not. Nothing's guaranteed in marketing, isn't So, I mean, have you ever had a campaign that maybe didn't work or faced a challenge and, you know, how did you solve it? Oh, we've both gone very quiet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no mistakes ever. <laughs> no, there have been mistakes. I think... Uh... <laughs> I'm not sure that it answers your question so perfectly, but it is a mistake and it links back to the needing the marketing playbook for different markets. So now, like I said, we have 60 different markets that we target with the wise blog. That doesn't include the ones we've deleted along the way that didn't work. And this was a long time ago. So don't judge us. You can judge me. It was my fault. There's multiple cases where we, you know, we've created this machine almost of efficiency where we know the content that works really well. So what we did is just kind of emulate that approach time and time again and until it, you know, it wasn't appropriate for particular markets that have very different advertising standards that you have to adhere to so in some cases we had to completely delete the every single piece of content that we created and paid for multiple times and also we've had times where we've had to heavily edit every single thing or delete swathes of the content because some of it's okay and some of it's not okay so I would say Again, coming from, from the SEO background, the biggest casualty for me is when you really do have to delete content that you, that you hoped was going to grow over time. So that was always the last resort. But in these cases, it was absolutely necessary. I think as well, you can flip it around in quite a nice way, though, in that I can definitely think of instances where we've got things wrong because we didn't tap into that in-market expertise. But I can also think of instances where we've been able to capture sentiment in a market I'm not located in. So it might be, hey, our team's actually doing really well in the World Cup and there's this big groundswell of support around it and you should tap into that and do something around sports marketing. So there's a nice side to it too. I've been mulling on campaigns that I've been involved in that haven't done that well. I've not had to wholesale delete anything. I did almost get sued as a journalist once, but that's a bit of a sidebar. But I think what really brings together campaigns where the performance has just kind of flopped a little bit has been when we've not been direct and that is normally because a lot of different people have weighed in on them so i'm thinking of one specific campaign i was involved in about personalization and privacy and to this day i kind of i think of the illustrations we put on that page and i cringe a little bit because they were so awkward and it's because it's a topic that it's really difficult. People really struggle to do it well. There's always a lot of caution around it. And I think sometimes with these topics where we both work in really highly regulated industries, you know you've got to get it right. The risk is so high reputationally, financially, legally, if you get it wrong, you can end up putting out something that's just kind of man nothing. And the, the big thing around personalization for me is always you've got to know who you are first. You can have all the playbooks in the world, but unless you have a really strong articulation of who you are as a brand, it's so difficult to go out there. And I mean, what advice would you have for a CMO or marketing manager who's perhaps going into a market for the first time and is building a global strategy for the very first time? Do your homework first. Get the get their marketing playbook. It's like speak with compliance people or legal people or whoever you need to speak to, for sure. You can tell we both work in financial services, right? We're like, talk to compliance <laughs> before you make a move anywhere. I never thought I would be that guy, but it's yeah. true. It's so true. 
again, talk to the people, understand who the people are there, what matters to your audience in that market, Why? what's driving you to go into that market, what's the synergy between what your business needs and what the people you want to market to need. And I think some really unexpected things can come out of that. I mean, we're a creative industry, the more time you spend getting to know who you're talking to and the different types of cultures you operate in, the more likely you are to, frankly, have good ideas. What about success stories? What's like the best thing that you've done globally? We figured out one very successful type of content, series of content, which Ooh, we do, do in every single... I'm not going to tell you. We, uh, <laughs> we do it in every single language. And uh, yeah, it's, it's the best one by far. But I, I, that makes me think of... Um, there's been smaller wins, less global and more local, but a life hack... I mean, it's not much of a hack because it's hard work, but to be able to provide content to people that's not very easily accessible otherwise. So for example, we had some cases where there's lots of information that people are searching for in Japanese, but there's no Japanese ranking websites that give you the info. The information is actually in PDFs, which may be hidden away somewhere in a website, or you need to call them up and ask some questions and find out how it works. And then you can create the content that has value that nobody else has because nobody else has gone and found the PDF and just, you know, done a, a nicer version of it. For me, a really obvious recipe of success is that all of our products are available in this really high search volume. And some of the best stories I've heard are where there's very limited product availability in the country so far. And the person in that market has done an amazing job of understanding what is needed. So it could be Hungary or Argentina where the currency is, is really fluctuating and people in Hungary probably want some savings in euros. Or in Argentina, the USD, US dollar is, is a very popular currency to mitigate against things like inflation. So really understanding what that's like means that the type of content you produce suddenly doesn't follow the global pattern. They're not, they're not kind of copying and pasting, so to speak. It's completely unique content that only works in that market. We could never globalize it. We could never publish it anywhere else. And those are some examples where I've seen really rewarding success because we didn't expect that it would work. I really like that. I think apart from all the times when I managed to get something killed before we rolled it out in a market where it would have been a real problem, I, I agree the biggest successes are always where you can find that niche that's not currently being served. And having that great SEO function, just to back up your, your love of the SEO function tonight, is so important. We often have a challenge at Standard Chartered because we're talking about products that are where we do have a lot of competitions. So if we're trying to talk to people about sustainable finance, every bank has a sustainable finance discussion going on. It's kind of table stakes in our industry to talk about sustainability now. So we have to find that thematic niche. So it might be we're going to hone in on this really particular question of the blue economy, or we're going to hone in on something about the just transition and how what are returns from solar power when you go into this particular market. It's always about finding those gaps in what people might be interested in. But apart from that, I think all of my biggest wins, just getting people across different time zones to work together to get something shipped is, is my favorite thing. I think probably my final question tonight is around what's next. It sounds like you both have really great strategies already. So What's next for you? What's coming down the pike? Industry-wise, AI, everybody's going to talk about AI. I find it a bit of a frustrating topic. I'm not super interested in all of these headlines that say AI is going to take over the world. But what I do think is really interesting is LLM, 
And I think probably when companies start to build compliant, completely gated, private, personal, company-owned LLMs that allow you to have something like ChatGPT within your own infrastructure that gives you access to you know, all your customer data or all your internal files and lets you answer questions or gather information in a really easy way. I think it will happen and I think it is happening and I think it'll be a really powerful tool for everybody. Also, I just think the way that AI or LLMs will integrate with tools that we use, so thinking like keyword research, used to be quite a manual job to find all the keywords, to group them up into meaningful themes and then create a content plan. But imagine you could just ask ChatGPT to give you all the keywords on this topic, group them in an, in a natural way with all the search volumes and give me a plan. That's that's a lot of work done in in a second. So I hate to talk about AI, but I actually think it's quite exciting. <laughs> think in terms of content marketing and specifically around personalization, I wonder if we're going to see a little bit of a pulling back from hyper-personalized content marketing. I was reading an interesting study by, I think, Adobe, where they found that they surveyed people who walked past a shop where they had some kind of existing customer relationship and got a text in response. And 41% of them said they found it creepy, <laughs> um, which I think I would as well. And I think we might be getting to the point where customers are getting a little bit sick of like hyper-personalized email chains where you're getting hit with email after email. I think being more human, being more direct is gonna come back in vogue as we come full circle. Thank you so much to Stephanie and Jared for joining me. If you'd like to know more about them, you can follow them on LinkedIn, links below. I'm your host, Catherine Strachan, CEO of Coffee House, an award-winning B2B content marketing agency for fast-growing fintech and technology brands. Find us at coffeehouse.io. The link's in the show notes. Tech Marketers Uncorked is produced by Fascinate Productions. See you next time. <laughs>